0: good evening welcome to catholic education classes tonight we're looking at sex in the marriage covenant by john Kipley. continuing uh with our uh read through this book and uh, before we start let's pray in the name of the father and son and Holy spirit amen Dear Lord, we pray that you open up our minds and hearts to accept the truth about married love and sexuality. That you will uh, help us know the truth and love the truth and live it out every day. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Saint Vincent Ferrer, pray for us. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, we're on page 58, and we are in the chapter called Birth Control and the Marriage Covenant, and we just finished off uh, a section that said that contraceptive behavior goes against the marriage covenant, and therefore it is immoral intrinsically dishonest, as Pope Paul VI said in Humanae Vitae. So we're at the bottom of page 58, number 4. How is systematic natural family planning to be evaluated in terms of the marriage covenant? By systematic natural family planning, NFP, I mean the effort to achieve or avoid pregnancy through an informed awareness of of the fertile and infertile times of the wife's fertility menstrual cycles. The word systematic distinguishes this form of NFP from ecological breastfeeding, which is also a form of natural child spacing. There's no moral question about spacing babies with ecological breastfeeding. And there's no moral question about using systematic NFP to achieve pregnancy. The statement is sometimes made, however, that couples using NFP to space or avoid pregnancies are acting for the same purposes as couples using contraceptive behaviors, and that, therefore, the two behaviors are morally the same. Some use this line of argument to justify contraception. Others use it to condemn the use of NFP. And I have heard that once in a while. Uh, Not from anybody who practices NFP because they know there's a world of difference. But I've heard people who really don't understand what they're talking about. They'll just say, oh, well, it's the same thing. And and there are some like super traditional Catholics who haven't really thought it through, who say NFP is wrong, you know, because you're just doing the same thing that contraceptors do. And on the other side, people who are using contraception, they're saying, well, you're just doing the same thing as us. (laughs) Believe me, it's a world of difference, and we're going to see the difference here in a moment. And I throw in there that there's
1: the modern language is not ecological breastfeeding well yeah. it is called natural contraception whoa that, that's what a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of like well, I mean before being we really got pregnant and stuff I was reading articles on it and there's just like like your your typical standard person writing about this calls breast feeding a natural contraception oh my not, goodness not ecological breastfeeding <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know but they, because they're saying it, it acts as a natural contraception like you don't get your right. they're, they're comparing it they are comparing it right. to using the birth so a, that's a really terrible
0: choice well, of words
1: that's, and these are people who don't who, who, who are not Looking religious. at the uh, they're not, they're not moral, religious.
0: theological aspect of
1: Correct. it. Correct. They're just saying, well, it keeps you from getting pregnant.
0: Well, right. You know, and be- anything that keeps you from getting pregnant in their world is contraception. Th- th- yes. And, and, but, but I'm just
1: saying that's the terminology that society uses, yeah.
0: it seems, today. I guess they would also call abstinence uh, contraceptive. Uh, you know, probably. Uh, they call abortifacients <laughs> contraceptives, you know, when yeah. they're actually causing abortion. Yeah. For these people, contraception is the—it's a broad term. Is a very very broad term, and it's used incorrectly. Yeah, but that's that. that that's also, interesting.
1: It also makes makes this confusing for your average. General. Yeah,
0: that's interesting yeah. to know. I did not know that that was in the today's literature. Yeah, I, I, I saw that in multiple articles when wow about this. Wow. Really misleading term there. Yes. Okay, on page fifty nine. Pope Paul VI specifically addressed this question in Humanae Vitae, which was, uh, we're just celebrating uh, 50 years of Humanae Vitae. It came out in July of 1968, and that's just uh, a little over 50 years ago. If, then, there are serious motives for spacing births, motives deriving from the physical or psychological condition of husband or wife or from external circumstances, the church teaches that it is then permissible to take into account the natural rhythms imminent in the generative functions and to make use of marriage during the infertile times only. And in this way, to regulate births, without offending the moral principles that we have just recalled. The church is consistent when she considers recourse to the infertile times to be permissible, while condemning as being always wrong the use of means directly contrary to fertilization, even if such use is inspired by reasons that can appear upright and serious. In reality, there is an essential difference between the two cases. In the first case, the husband and wife legitimately avail themselves of a natural condition. In the second case, they impede the working of natural processes. It is true that in both cases the married couples agree in positively willing to avoid children for plausible reasons seeking to be certain that offspring will not result but it is likewise true that only in the first case do they provide do they prove able to abstain from the use of marriage during the fertile times for when for proper motives procreation is not desirable then making use of it during the infertile times to manifest affection and to safeguard mutual fidelity By doing so, they give proof of a love that is truly and fully virtuous. Pope John Paul II also responded in Familiaris Consortio to the suggestion that there is no real moral difference between using contraception and using natural family planning as follows. Quote, Theological reflection is able to perceive and is called to study further the difference both anthropological and moral between contraception and recourse to the rhythm of the cycle. It is a difference which is much wider and deeper than is usually thought, one which involves in the final analysis two irreconcilable concepts of the human person. And of human sexuality. Yes. Contraception and NFP are drastically different. In the one case, you're working with the God-given nature of a a woman's cycle. And in the other one, you are purposely frustrating the God-given nature of the woman's cycle. And of uh, sexual intercourse, you're in the one you're having sexual intercourse in the fertile time, and you're frustrating the outcome. In the other one, you are not having sexual intercourse during the fertile time. I don't see how you can get much different than this. You're doing two totally different things here, and you're not doing two totally different things. When you impede the natural outcome of the action, you are working against God's natural fruitfulness of intercourse. I mean, to frustrate God's will is the very definition of sin. And that's exactly what you're doing in contraception. In natural family planning, you're not frustrating God's will in anything. You're not not impeding or frustrating the natural outcome of intercourse because you're only having intercourse during the infertile time. And there's no rule saying you've got to have intercourse every day of your life. So it's as different as black and white. But a lot of people don't see it. On, on On the surface, they, oh, you just do the same thing. No, you're not. And like I say, the only people who think you're doing the same thing are people who have never practiced natural family planning. Because when you practice natural family planning and you abstain from intercourse, you find out very quickly you're doing something very different than what they're doing. For clarity, two points should be noted. First of all, the end does not homogenize the means. That is, the same end or purpose does not make morally the same. All the various means to achieve the goal. Everyone recognizes this when it comes to comparing the means to arrive at the goal of owning a nice house. No serious person would say that the same goal would make selling illegal drugs and working hard as a plumber morally the same just because they were both aimed at buying a nice house. The same applies to family spacing or limitations. Assuming there is a sufficiently serious reason for such family planning, the common goal does not render morally the same the evil action of marital contraception and the morally indifferent practice of periodic abstinence. Other illustrative examples of the principle are provided in the section of chapter 15 dealing with the principle of the total human act secondly there is a huge difference can we call it an infinite difference between doing and not doing the couple who engage in contraceptive behaviors do certain things that bring about ejaculation orgasm and are acting to prevent the natural possibility of co-creating a new human person and or allowing that person to develop. Such contraceptive action can be either simultaneous with intercourse as with barrier contraceptives or actions taken before intercourse as in the case of chemical or physical sterilization, or actions taken after intercourse, as with a douche. Morally, all such actions are contraceptive or abortifacient, and all such actions are condemned by humane Vitae. On the other hand, The couple using NFP to avoid pregnancy simply are not doing the act of intercourse during the fertile time. When they do have intercourse, they do not act to prevent the natural consequences of their mutual actions. They have a firmly based hope that their action will not bring them the responsibilities of another child to care for, but they are not acting to prevent their intercourse from co-creating a child. Their intercourse remains symbolic of their marriage covenant, for they have done nothing to act against it. Believing that they have a sufficiently serious reason not to become pregnant at this time, they have simply chosen to affirm their covenant in sexual intercourse during the natural, naturally fertile time. Excuse me. They have simply chosen not to affirm their covenant in sexual intercourse during the naturally fertile time. The following comparison between premarital considerations and natural family planning may make this difference more clear. Premarital considerations. In preparing for marriage, the love of most men and women is tempered or guided by some practicality and even fear. The typical man and woman will avoid selecting a mate who is ill. This may be completely unconscious, for the healthy person's dating pattern may automatically preclude getting to know an unhealthy person very well the real test would come only if one party to a future marriage were suddenly stricken with a debilitating lifelong disease. For example, what if the the prospective groom suffered an accident and head injuries that would make it impossible for him to ever earn a living? Or what if the prospective bride were struck with a crippling disease that would not only make it impossible for her to care for children, but even precluded the possibility of sexual relations. Would the remaining healthy prospective bride or groom be unloving not to enter marriage with the one who had met such a disaster? I, for one, could not judge non-marriage to be a sign of non-love in this case. I feel that in such heart-rending cases, greater love may be shown by tender care and solicitude given without the bond of marriage than by entering a whole way of life under such circumstances. At any rate, before marriage, neither party has pledged lifelong fidelity to the other. And both the one stricken and the one left healthy are free to break off the wedding plans. Likewise, most people entering marriage give some attention to the economics of life together. Will I be able to support a family without finishing my education? Will I ever be able to support her with her background of having had everything she ever wanted and never had to work for a cent? Will he be able to support me and our children or will I have to be working all our married life? Tom is studying to be a doctor. Jim wants to teach in high school. Richard is the most fun of all to be with, but he lives only for today, has no ambition at all. I am not suggesting that many people make marital decisions based just on dollars and cents. I do think that consciously or unconsciously such matters do influence the marital selection process to some degree in a great number of cases (laughs) yeah absolutely true on that Um, I saw somewhere on the internet that 75 percent of women the number one thing they look for in a husband is financial security Mm -hmm. number one consideration for 75 percent of women yeah well It's it's not stupid
1: Yeah and, you know, when you are, I think when you're a guy who, you know, I think, um, the guys, the guys in, if you're a guy who has money, all right, you come from money, yeah. you have money, yeah. I don't think it really matters a whole lot. Even some of them look to marry into more money. Really? I, I Just because it's, it's, it's on their, their level with their parents, you know, it's, it's, it's just, more social, socially, mm-hmm. you know, type of thing. I think people who have <laughs> money think more about money. I think so, too. But also, people who have less money also think about money a lot because, like me, I never wanted to marry somebody who had a lot of money because they might expect a lot of things that maybe you can't provide. Maybe I can't provide, or maybe their parents would provide it for us, but then at the same time, I, I'd feel inadequate.
0: You know, yeah. if
1: the, the parents just gave us You may
0: be getting yourself into a situation <clears throat> where you're trying to take care of a high maintenance person. Correct. You know, which may not be a good fit. Correct. And yeah. especially, I mean, you came from our family, and our family's always been on the low income. Yeah. And so high maintenance just sounds like a nightmare. Well, and for
1: me, no matter how much money I would ever make, I don't want to just blow my money. Right. And and because so, we
0: have learned frugality and prudence mm-hmm. growing up, yeah, we just don't like blowing money and spending money and too much, and it doesn't fit yeah. with our Christian beliefs. Uh, materialism is not a good fit with Christianity. Yeah. So I think most uh,
1: most um, mature people think about. Money in marriage,
0: right? A lot, and and I, but I think they look at it in very different <laughs> ways. There, there's a lot of different ways that people look at it, but the economics is certainly a consideration in who you're going to spend your life with. Which you know, I'm very
1: surprised that that number is so high. I've heard that same number, but because I, the reason why I'm, it's so surprising is because a lot of a lot of uh. Like girls that I have known, they've gone to college and they have their own, they have their own job, their own career. So why would they really care so much for financial stability in the way that they're marrying?
0: Well, I think it's pure biology. They know someday they're going to have babies, and they may not <coughs> be able to carry on that career. And I think they want somebody who can keep the money coming in. It's called a stay at home dad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh well. But, you know, that, that, yeah. that's another, that's a whole other topic. Yep. Back to our text. Finally, I think it is fair to say that the whole selection process is based on the hopes of maximizing the for better and minimizing the risk of for worse in marriage, of course. That people do this is not unloving. It is to recognize that in marriage, the couple will want as many things in their favor as possible. That love is more than mutual attraction to each other's face and figure. I think it is fair to say that most people do try to minimize the risk through various selection techniques before they enter into marriage. Furthermore, many couples and individuals recognizing the difficulties of married life try to reduce the risk not only through the selection process, but also by postponement of marriage until they are able to accept the full responsibilities of marriage. This is not being inhuman or cold and calculating, although it does involve the destruction of marriage seen as an idol to be worshipped, or the panacea of everyone's personal problems. It is simply the recognition that the covenant of marriage involves far more than the expression of affective love and doing things together. It involves a recognition that is sometimes good and even necessary to postpone the full union of the marital embrace in order to secure some of the other goods associated with responsible marriage. Couples such as these try to minimize the risk in marriage in a responsible way without negating in any way the risk inherent in the faith commitment of marriage itself having attempted to be prudent in their planning and timing they still enter into marriage knowing that the best laid plans of men often go astray and that their commitment is not based on their plans but exists rather in spite of the fact that their plans and hopes may fail yeah It's just imprudent to rush into marriage sometimes. You're not being unloving. You're being smart. Some couples may find that their socioeconomic educational backgrounds make it possible to eliminate almost completely the external risk to which any marriage is liable. Others may not even care about such matters, or if they do, they are unable to do much as much as they would like to do about them. I would be the last one in the world to say that the marriage of a young couple who marry without any savings, income, education, or job prospects, but only a strong love for each other is any more or any less of a valid marriage than that of a couple who have such factors as material advantages. I totally agree. The point is that when either type of couple marry they do so without reservation and recognize that any plans are subordinate to their marriage covenant. You know, once you enter into the covenant it's for better or worse no matter what you had planned. Mm-hmm. And you may think you got all the economic advantages and everything's nailed down but it can all go to hell in a handbasket very quickly. Mm-hmm. Through a disease, through an accident, through a lawsuit, through a bankruptcy, things can go down the hill very quickly. Well, and
1: and and I think I think my generation actually over is is over uh, plans or over weights or. I I think there are many in your
0: generation who are yeah. I mean, they—they they might be trying to overdo the external factors a little bit too much. Yeah, because because I also look at it. They wait I, for six,
1: seven, eight years to get married, and, and and I look at it this way. I mean, I got married much faster than yeah almost all of my friends. Yeah, you know, from from the from the time dating dating my future wife to being married, and but I like like when when you when you know that this is the person you're going to marry. Why wait? Life really isn't going. To ch- life isn't really going to change. I mean, if you have a job, or you don't have a job. But like as long as you're like living outside the house. Like to me, if you're living outside the house, what is going to change by being married to the person and then now you're living in the same place? Like what? What's going, if you're both in school? You're both in school. You're either living. Well, the whole idea is, if you start having babies,
0: life changes dramatically. That's true, in many ways. Yes. And so, are you ready to start having babies? Maybe. I think that's a big question.
1: Well, yes, but in you know it. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I feel like life is short, and at how many more years are you gonna put on to? Yeah. Waiting. Yeah.
0: I mean, you wait four yeah. more years. Right. And that's just. Everybody has different considerations.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just think my my generation does wait a long time.
0: They, they are. They're waiting so late to get married, it's crazy. To attempt to reduce the risk of marriage before entering into it is one thing. It would be something of an entirely different nature if the couple together or either one separately were to exclude positively the risk itself of marriage. For example, what if a couple before marriage agreed? that in the case of a crippling or debilitating sickness after marriage, they would be free agents once again? Or what if a couple agreed to stick together as long as everything was working out satisfactorily, but that they would be free agents once again if the union didn't work out? Such couples simply wouldn't be married, no matter how grandiose the ceremonies, even if they were presided over by the Pope himself. To the outside world, such arrangements may look like marriages, but they are not. They are only agreements to cohabitate as long as the sun is shining and the roses are blooming and the jasmine is filling the bedroom with perfume. Yeah, that's not marriage. Marriage is an unconditional commitment of your life to the other person. If you say, well... If it doesn't work out, we'll just get divorced and we'll be free agents. That's not marriage. Natural family planning. By comparison, the couple who practices NFP are like the couple who attempt to reduce the external risk of marriage by the postponement of a marriage date until various conditions are more satisfactory. The couple practicing periodic abstinence are likewise trying to reduce the risk of the problems that they see associated with the pregnancy at this time by postponing the full sexual union as an expression of their love. They do not love each other less during the time of abstinence any more so than they loved each other less during a chaste courtship. During the time of periodic abstinence, They will have to show affection and love for each other in a manner akin to their chaste behavior before marriage. When they do choose to express their love and affection in the marital sex union, they are hopeful that the consequences will be the same as they hoped for in their initial marriage covenant. Quote, for richer, in health, for better. They are hopeful that a pregnancy that they think will bring conditions of, quote, for poor, in sickness, for worse, will not occur. Nevertheless, by the fact that they are still only hopeful and have not positively excluded the possibility of pregnancy, they still enter into a valid renewal of their original marriage covenant. There is still the risk of faith, the implicit affirmation of covenant love, the trust of putting their lives in the hands of the Father Creator. In summary, what renders a marriage null and void is not prior planning, but the absolutizing of the elements of for better to the positive exclusion of those elements considered to be for worse. Similarly, what renders the marriage act invalid and therefore immoral is not the planning of when to have children and how many, but rather the absolutizing of those plans through recourse to contraceptive behaviors, the effort positively to exclude the possibility of four worse from the marital embrace. Both the original covenant and the sacramental renewal of it may be postponed. However, once the respective actions are no longer postponed but are realized, then the couple must not close their actions to the consequences that may follow. So, in NFP, you're trying to avoid children sometimes, you're trying to have children other times. And that is perfectly okay because you're working with the natural cycle that God put in place. In contraception, you are saying, no, I'm not going to give myself completely to this other person, which is what the marriage covenant is about. Uh, I'm not going to give my fertility to this other person. I'm going to chemically or surgically sterilize myself or do something to stop it. And in that way, you are not renewing your marriage covenant. The marriage covenant is a full and total commitment. And you are withholding your fertility, which is one of the greatest uh, gifts God has ever given you. So you're not giving yourself. You're saying that you're giving yourself in the act of intercourse, but you're not actually doing it. You've done something to frustrate the natural outcome of that intercourse. Where an NFP, you're not doing that. You're simply avoiding intercourse during the fertile times. And when you do have intercourse in what you think is the infertile time, it's possible it could turn out you could get pregnant and you're you're going to accept that. See, so the commitment is still there. The total commitment is there. Number five on page 63. How does the covenant theology of sexuality correspond with the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church? The Catholic Church has not adopted any particular theology of sexuality as its own, not even the theology of the body developed by Pope John Paul II. The actual teaching of the church regarding sexuality can be summarized in a few statements, just as the basics of the natural moral law are summarized in the Ten Commandments. Such a summary would look something like this. 1. Husbands, love, and respect your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 2 Wives love and be subject to your husbands as the church is subject to the Lord. 3 If you marry, thou shalt marry for life. 4 If you marry, thou shalt be generous in having children in accordance with your circumstances. And, you know and that's it's kind of a tricky one there the circumstances for a one married couple having one baby might be generous because of certain physical and 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 external and and I mean there's a billions of people and there's billions of different situations and I'm sure we could construct a situation where having one child and limiting yourself to that would be a very uh good action now other people you know i think uh saint catherine of siena i think uh, she was child number 25. i think under any circumstances that's being pretty generous (laughs) (coughs) thou shalt educate thy children in the way of the lord Thou number six thou shalt not commit adultery Number seven, thou shalt not divorce and remarry. Number eight, thou shalt not fornicate. Number nine, thou shalt not commit homosexual acts. Ten, thou shalt not close the marriage act to the transmission of life. Eleven, thou shalt not seek venereal pleasure outside of marriage. Twelve, thou shalt not seek orgasm outside of marriage the marriage act 13 thou shalt not look at others with lustful intentions 14 thou shalt not tempt others to lust after you through dress word or action while the contents of this book have not dealt with each of these points the covenant theology of sexuality supports the entirety of Catholic teaching regarding sexuality. If I understand correctly the theology of the body developed by Pope John Paul II, the covenant theology of sexuality is very similar. The starting points are different. The theology of the body starts with an analysis of the human condition, the meaning inherent in the physical act of sexual intercourse, And it concludes that sexual relations are a nuptial act. The covenant theology of sexuality starts with the observation that sacred scripture and even other sources regard sexual relations as having their full and proper meaning only within marriage. Then it analyzes what makes a couple married and concludes that sexual intercourse is intended by God to be a true marriage act, a renewal of the original marriage covenant. From that point on it appears to me that the application of the theology of the body and the covenant theology of sexuality would be identical. However, I leave it to scholars who are interested in both approaches to determine such similarities or any dissimilarities. The phrasing of the covenant theology of sexuality is advantageous for instruction. Sexual intercourse is intended by God to be a renewal of the marriage covenant, at least implicitly. Almost every couple is capable of standing of understanding that God has a plan for sex and that he intends that 1. Sex is supposed to be a marriage act, 2 that is supposed to reflect their original for better and for worse marriage commitment. And three, that their sexual relations should never be opposed to their original marriage vows. Six. So in in summarizing that question, you know, the covenant theology of sexuality which is presented in this book is in 100% accord with the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Six, is systematic natural family planning morally permissible? Or should couples just let the babies come as they may? It may seem to some readers that this is a purely academic question, not a real one. Not so. In 1985, a Protestant writer condemned the whole notion of natural family planning and placed NFP in the same category as contraception. Yeah. I remember that whole controversy back in the mid-80s. It was called the full quiver. Mm-hmm. You
1: know. That I remember you telling me about.
0: Yeah. And this Protestant fellow, I mean, he condemned NFP, saying, Well, you're not letting God have his way. Basically, you should have as many children as you can possibly have and that is that can be very imprudent unwise and unchristlike but he thought so he thought that was the way to go his whole full quiver thing in 1990 i received a four-page single space typewritten letter from a catholic gentleman trying to prove that the catholic teaching allowing natural family planning is erroneous That same year, I received at least four letters telling me that the writers would no longer support the couple-to-couple league for natural family planning because they had decided to let the babies come according to God's providence. In the first decade of the 21st century, it is still a real question. I call these people providentialists. While their number may be small, especially when compared with the vast number of contraceptionists, They are sincere, and they illustrate that the actual teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is truly the via media, the middle way. The providentialists have a point. Sacred Scripture encourages married couples to have children. The first commandment of the Bible is still in effect. Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Toward the end of the New Testament we read, Women will be saved through bearing children if she continues in faith and love and holiness with modesty. 1 Timothy 2.15 Thus it is no exaggeration to say that from front to back the Bible calls for married couples to have children. Second, for centuries Catholic theology taught that the primary purpose of marriage was the procreation and education of children, and that the development of the unitive aspects of marriage was secondary. Again, certain quotations from writers of the past, even saints, make it appear that they forgot St. Paul's candid acceptance of marital relations for relief of sexual tension. At first glance, their statements appear to label as venially sinful any marital intercourse, not consciously seeking pregnancy. Third, as we have seen, even the teaching of Vatican II, though avoiding the primary secondary terminology, laid a much heavier emphasis on the procreative dimension than on the unitive aspects of marriage and marital intercourse. Gaudium et spes, paragraph 47 to 53, especially paragraph number 50. On the other hand, there is a reality known as Christian prudence. It is not the same as worldly prudence, which calculates everything according to materialistic standards of money, health, and psychological well-being. Christian prudence does not ignore any of these needs and realities, but it keeps them in place. Christian prudence remembers that life is lived in the shadow of the cross on which the Savior of the world hung and died. Catholic teaching rejects both the notion that human reason is totally depraved because of original sin, and the opposite notion that my every thought is what God wants it to be. Rather, while recognizing our weaknesses and our tendencies to rationalize whatever seems convenient or pleasurable, it holds that under the influence of divine grace, and aided by the teaching of the church, we can use human reason to make right decisions. To repeat, there is a reality known as truly Christian prudence. Thus, from the beginning of modern papal teaching on birth control, the church has recognized the licitness of using natural family planning in the face of serious reasons to avoid pregnancy. Such teaching begins with Casti Canubi, the encyclical of Pope Pius XI that responded to the breakaway from the Christian tradition by the Church of England in 1930. Quote from paragraph 59 of Casti Canubi Nor are those considered as acting against nature who, in the married state, use their right in the proper manner, although on account of natural reasons, either of time or of certain defects new life cannot be brought forth. For in matrimony, as well as in the use of the matrimonial rights, there are also secondary ends, such as mutual aid, the cultivating of mutual love, the quieting of concupiscence, which husband and wife are not forbidden to consider, so long as they are subordinated to the primary end and so long as the intrinsic nature of the act is preserved. You know, it's just wonderful how the teaching of the church has been so consistent. You know, 1930, 1968, 1980s John Paul II, I mean they're all exactly the same. They say it in a little bit different wording but it's all exactly the same. Note the phrase although on account of natural reasons, either of time or of certain defects. The most obvious meanings of this are the menopausal years, the times of pregnancy and postpartum infertility, and the defects of female or male involuntary sterility. It is not immediately clear whether the Pope also was including the times of natural infertility During the normal female menstrual cycle, since Pius XI did not use the term rhythms of infertility, used by Paul VI in Humanae Vitae, it is sometimes questioned whether Pius XI was approving of systematic recourse to the infertile times to avoid pregnancy when he wrote the paragraph quoted above. Three facts of history support the position that natural family planning is accepted by Cassie Kanuki. One, there had been medical speculation about the infertile time of the cycle since 1840 and this had raised questions about having relations only during the infertile time to avoid pregnancy. The questions reached the Vatican and the Vatican responses in 1853 and 1880 allowed the moral principle of periodic abstinence. Thus, despite the inaccuracy of the medical speculations, they guessed the infertile time was about mid-cycle. Actually, the most fertile time. (laughs) You know, it's amazing to a lot of people (coughs) how little we knew about reproduction until just recently in human history. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people today, you know, with all of our biological knowledge about conception and the, you know, the growth of the child and everything, they kind of think, well, we always knew this. You're crazy. This is very recent knowledge. Mm-hmm. There was extremely inaccurate medical and scientific speculation not that long ago. Okay, back to our text. The Vatican had approved the principle of systematic NFP a full 77 years before it became a practical possibility. This background was certainly known to Pope Pius XI. Number two, the Vatican is a great listening post. The physiological discoveries about the time of ovulation which are the basis for systematic natural family planning, occurred just a few years before 1930. And the formulation of the first form of natural family planning called rhythm, or calendar rhythm, was even closer to 1930. Specifically, articles had appeared in German medical journals in July of 1929 and February of 1930 describing the basis for calendar rhythm. It is almost unthinkable that word about the new discoveries in Austria and Japan had not reached Rome, the papal advisors and the Pope. 3. As calendar rhythm became well known in the 1930s, the Pope never said anything against it. On October 29, 1951, Pope Pius XII reaffirmed the validity of using natural family planning to avoid pregnancy in an address to Italian midwives, and the Second Vatican Council explicitly recognized the role of Christian prudence in making decisions about family size. Gaudium et spes was dated December 7, 1965, and approximately two and a half years later, July 25, 1968, Pope Paul VI issued Humanae Vitae, his definitive reaffirmation of the traditional teaching against marital contraception. As has already been noted, he explicitly allowed natural family planning. Pope John Paul II made teaching against marital contraception the primary teaching effort of the first ten years of his pontificate, 1978-1988. to He also did more to promote the knowledge of natural family planning than any previous pope. In his teaching document Familiaris Consortio, the pope contrasts recourse to natural family planning with contraception. Contraceptive couples, quote, act as arbiters of the divine plan, and they manipulate and degrade human sexuality, and with it themselves and married partners by altering its value of total self-giving. Thus, the innate language that expresses the total reciprocal self-giving of husband and wife is overlaid through contraception by an objectively contradictory language, namely, that of not giving oneself totally to the other. As we said before, it's body language it is a big lie the body says I give myself to you completely but it's not so the couple who use NFP act in an entirely different way when instead by means of recourse to period, periods of infertility the couple respect the inseparable connections between the unitive and procreative procreative meanings of human sexuality, they are actes as ministers of God's plan and they benefit from their sexuality according to the original dynamism of total self-giving without manipulation or alteration. The Holy Father then continues in Familiaris Consortio to note that the difference between using contraception and natural family planning is much wider and deeper than is usually thought one which involves in the final analysis two irreconcilable concepts of the human person and of human sexuality. Having reaffirmed the traditional teaching, John Paul II talks about the help the church provides for couples experiencing difficulties. In addition to the necessary spiritual virtues in the sacraments, he notes that, quote, the necessary conditions... For understanding and living the moral teaching, also include knowledge of the bodily aspect and the body's rhythms of fertility. Accordingly, every effort must be made to render such knowledge accessible to all married people and also to young adults before marriage, though through clear, timely, and serious instruction and education given by married couples, doctors, and experts. Though thoroughly aware that knowledge is not virtue, he continues, knowledge must then lead to education in self-control, hence the absolute necessity for the virtue of chastity and for permanent education in it. Furthermore, the church has to help. With regard to the question of lawful birth regulation, the ecclesial community at the present time must take on the task of instilling conviction and offering practical help to those who wish to live out their parenthood in a truly responsible way. This implies a broader, more decisive, and more systematic effort to make the natural methods of regulating fertility known, respected, and applied. This is not the place to provide a complete compendium of all that Pope John Paul II said about natural family planning. The above statements ranging from Pope Pius XI in 1930 to Pope John Paul II provide ample evidence that the Roman Catholic Church condemns using unnatural means of birth control and accepts the use of natural family planning when a couple has serious reason to avoid pregnancy. It urges that all couples should learn NFP so that they can use the information if and when they need it. Um, So we'll finish up with that here tonight. Um, Pope John Paul II was saying that the church really needs to get a handle on natural family planning needs to learn the scientific basis of the whole thing as well as possible and teach it as effectively as possible Mm -hmm. to everybody in the church, especially the young who are entering into marriage. It is very discouraging that natural family planning is not being taught as much as it should be around here we have some teachers and and many of the parishes around here have programs and and there's online teaching and everything now but uh, there are some bishops who require NFP to be taught to all young married couples that is so appropriate that's what the pope is calling for but sadly most bishops have not done that most bishops have just turned their head away and put their head in the sand and act like This this doesn't need to be addressed. And so what do we have? we got about 95% of young Catholic couples using contraception. I mean, I really think that every bishop should require NFP to be taught to every married couple so they see the wonderfulness of it, the benefit of it, the holiness of it, all the spiritual advantages of it and to help them avoid the grave matter and the mortal sin of contraception. I see you want to say something.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it would be great if it's taught natural planning, but it would also be great if they just did better in their pre-marriage. Uh, in their pre-marriage. Educational program. Educational program, or, you know, talk, whatever. You know, one of the priest meets with Yeah. You. I mean, some of yeah, I mean, that was you know. Some we, of the
0: marriage preparation programs are woefully lacking.
1: I mean, you go on, you take a test, and the result, uh, the the priest has the results of the test, and he goes over like just major questions, just to see where are you two yeah. really, you know, and 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 what your your thoughts and your understanding on stuff, and but there's like no real there's no real like like uh, discussion about whether or not uh, if there's a difference between something if this is going to be an issue or not right you know, and I don't know I just think it's pretty pathetic.
0: you thought the marriage preparation that you received was inadequate, very, and I was very disappointed
1: that. We had like an intro with the priest. And then the second one was held by a deacon. And the deacon was much less effective than the priest. You know what I mean? Wasn't that knowledgeable? Correct. And I don't expect a deacon to be as knowledgeable as a priest. I mean, let's be honest. Priests deal with married couples
0: a lot more. In, in a typical it, case, it all depends. I'm sure there are some deacons who are wonderfully prepared uh, and, yeah. and who could do wonderful marriage preparation. But, but I, I'm sure there I, are many deacons who. I,
1: I don't think that we should undervalue the fact that priests listen to confessions oh yeah. from, 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 from married people all, every day. Right. And I, I, I you, think, would, you would hope I that they would that, have a better grip on it. Well, you know, I would just think that, that you sit there, you learn. The mistakes that people make. Yeah, a deacon is never ever going to have that experience. That's true. He's and, not
0: hearing confessions. And,
1: and I just think that that's like pretty invaluable to take that into a yeah. prep.
0: For, yeah. You know. Well, for something <laughs> as important as marriage, uh, there should be a really good preparation for it. But you know, the world we're living in—if you had a, I'm sure, I'm sure some clergy would say if we have a really dynamic course that you have to take for a year or something like that you're just not going to have anybody get married in Catholic Church. they are simply going to skip marriage um, yeah. and go down the street. And I'm not saying you need to do it for a year. What, 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 I'm, what
1: I'm saying is is that you could have more than two talks.
0: Yes, you could have more than two short talks and I think where you do the real marriage preparation is in the home Parents raising their Uh children, teaching them as they grow up, this is what marriage is all about. Yeah. You know. Uh And of course, you had the wonderful experience of going to a Catholic high school that actually taught the Catholic faith. Yeah. And I think the students at our high school where I teach are just so blessed to have such a wonderful instruction. Uh, maybe they're not paying close enough attention because they're young and and they think marriage is a decade away. And but still, the more you hear it, the more you hear correct instruction about yeah. marriage and sexuality, the better off you are. That's why we're doing these classes. That's why we're doing this education, so that people will have more instruction in the correct use of sexuality in marriage. Yeah, I you
1: know like I'll never forget. I mean. I was a senior, Yeah, you know, There's another kid, 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 in my game. We're seniors, all right. At football practice, yeah. And he asked me a very basic moral question. Yeah. And like, I was like, oh, like, am I getting punked here? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, have you not been sitting in class for the last four years listening? To yeah. It? I mean, because it, it was just. Be After four years. After four years, he like a basic the... question about drinking alcohol. Stuff, he didn't like, oh, know the I ABC. Did. It's like, what, what were you doing in class, you know? I mean, so some people literally, yeah. they, they don't pay. I mean, and, even though they had this great
0: opportunity to... Oh, I know.
1: You know, they, they kind of missed it.
0: That thought hit my brain one day <laughs> uh, when we, in the summertime, at the Pregnancy uh, Crisis Center, mm-hmm. at the Women's Center, we had a sophomore from Bowling Green University, a woman, come in. And when she saw the video on the development of the baby inside of her, broke down crying and she said, I can't have an abortion, I'm already a mother. Mm-hmm. Like, what did you think you had inside you? Mm-hmm. What were you doing in biology class? Yeah. Had did you not learn anything in biology class mm-hmm. under human development? Yeah. Did you think you had a bicycle in there? What'd you think? Yeah. Of course it's a baby in there. And it's just, you're a college sophomore. And you don't know that a baby is a
1: baby. Well, see, see, so this is, you know, somebody would say, oh, well, it's just a a, a group of cells. You know, it's just a, a bundle of cells. But, you know, somebody who was talking about, you know, a pro-life person who was giving a talk about abortion and stuff like that, he said, well, you know, somebody tried to use that on him. They said, well, it's, it's just a bundle of cells. And he said, well, you're just a bundle of cells. Right? You know, because that's what we are. We're a bundle you of cells. You can say that about I, I am I mean, everybody, everybody's a bundle of cells. Yeah. I mean, it's such an ineffective.
0: But sometimes you're just shocked you're, by how, how people, people can sit in a class and not learn anything. Correct. People, you know. Um, little, we got to pray. Yeah. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Lord, for our class tonight. Um, Open up our hearts and our minds to know your way, to love your way, and to live your way of love every day. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it, as it was, was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world, 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 world without world. end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Lord Son, and Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen.